unknown vessel, this is Wayland Utani Anchor Point Station. Please respond. Troop transport Sulaco. Return. New? Kid bit me! Don't touch me! Oh, don't touch her! Bishop. Hicks. Weapons Division intends to develop the alien. Audible Studios present Alien 3 by William Gibson, starring Michael Bean and Lance Henriksen. This episode of the Slash Filmcast is brought to you by Casper. Go to casper.com slash filmcast and use the promo code filmcast to save yourself $50 off your purchase. That's casper.com slash filmcast and the promo code filmcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Slash Filmcast, the official podcast of SlashFilm.com. I'm David Chen, and with me are... Devendra Hardwar. And Jeff Kanata. Welcome to the show, everyone. Uh, what we're going to do here on this podcast today is we're going to talk about some what we've been watching. Uh, we got a couple of brief film news items up top, and then we're also going to do a Slash Film Court segment where we adjudicate your movie-related dilemmas. Before we move into our featured review this week, and that's of Catherine Bigelow's new film, Detroit. Uh, so that's what we got in store for you today. Find more episodes of this podcast at SlashFilmCast.com. Email us at SlashFilmCast at gmail.com. So a, a couple film news items I just wanted to mention up top. Guys, I, I feel like the film news on this show has really been suffering this summer because we've, <laughs> had, we've just had so many movies to review. It's just a lot to do. It's been yeah. an insane number of movies. I mean, uh, I did a Dark Tower uh, bonus episode and an Okja bonus episode with uh, Matt Singer and Devendra Hardwar, respectively. You'd find that on the Slash from Cast feed. Um, but yeah, it's just, you know, I think I said this earlier on, like, this is probably the best July we've had since I've started doing the podcast, right? I mean,. Just an insane number of great films during that month. Yeah, th- right? those two notwithstanding, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, that's correct. I mean, it, it was a great July. It was a terrible June, uh, mm-hmm. other than Baby Driver, you know. But it was a it was a great July. Um, but there's just been a lot of film news that's happened that we just haven't had a chance to talk about. And uh, on the one hand, that sucks. On the other hand, it's great because there's actually a new podcast out that can help you with that need. It's called Slash Film Daily. And it's run by uh, other fine folks at SlashFilm.com. And I recommend you check it out wherever your podcasts are available. Uh, They they do a daily show where they talk about film news. Uh, It's pretty cool. You can find it at daily.slashfilm.com. But, yeah, a few things we wanted to mention. Number one is that uh, a few really important people in the world of pop culture have passed away. Uh, Sam Shepard passed away recently. Yeah. Yeah. A uh, very talented actor as well as a uh, playwright. Jeff, like, you know, you're an act- actor, obviously. Like, what was, what was your primary way of uh, getting to know Sam Shepard? Did you, like, admire more of his acting work or his writing? Well, of course, I admired his writing first because um, I, as a, as a theater kid and as a, as a BFA, a theater major in college, of course, Sham- Sam Shepard is basically part of the canon you're taught. I mean, he is one of the great American playwrights and his body of work from the late seventies and early eighties is 
like a chapter in any actor's learning process. I mean, Buried Child and Curse of the Starving Class and Fool for Love. And uh, I mean, there so many amazing, incredible roles that he's written. So, yeah, I was first exposed to him through his writing, his brutal, very American writing. Uh, it's very, it's very, uh, the language in it is so raw and the emotions are so raw. It is, it is, he's his own genre in a lot of ways. And then later uh, is when I sort of learned more about his acting. And of course he's a phenomenal actor as well. And all the way up through, uh, bloodline, (laughs) he was the patriarch on blood bloodline, but many, many, many film roles. And it's, it's a, he's a huge talent, a huge force in American drama and he will be missed for sure. He was just so reliable. I think when you see Sam Shepard in something, even like, uh, what was it? Swordfish. He's in swordfish. (laughs) Um, he's a good old reliable actor. Like I just love seeing him in things, but, uh, in particular, the right stuff, him as Chuck Yeager. That's, that's an incredible role. Oh yeah. Great part. Did I say true West? If I didn't say true West, I'm, I'm, that's maybe his most known play. Mm -hmm. Um, he, you know, if you haven't read any any Sam Shepard, chances are uh, there's a Sam Shepard play that's on near you <laughs> at some point in the next couple of years. You know, they, they, he is in the American repertoire and, uh, you know, he, there's going to be a theater that does one of his plays soon if they are, haven't, aren't doing one right now because he's just he's part of that pantheon. Sam Shepard will be missed um, and leaves a huge body of work that will be appreciated for a very long time to come. One other piece of film news that I wanted to mention is uh, actually a a bit of television news. Uh, Jason Bateman sent out a tweet uh, about a week ago. Uh, It's it's a behind-the-scenes photo of the uh, Bluth home uh, from Arrested Development. Not uh, not the model home, but the... uh, uh, mother and father Bluth home. He wrote, wrote in the tweet, here comes trouble. The Bluths move back in on the 8th. Uh, and he was referring to the uh, start of principal photography on Arrested Development Season 5, which is slated to come back uh, on, in 2018. So, Man. yeah, uh, this is an, a sh- an instance of a show, you, you know, dying, coming back, and then, like, I, I don't know that it ever died again, but I certainly thought we would never see another Arrested Development season. And then coming back again, right? Well, I think it's one of those it's one of those ones where we all were like, ah, oh, it's one of those be careful what you wish for things because <laughs> season four was not great and everybody was disappointed. And I'm like, fool me once, the second time I'm going to be more excited. <laughs> that's good. that's how I feel right now because I, I I'm. I'm very optimistic that this is not going to fall into the same trap as season four. I was very disappointed with season four. Uh, Rest of development is in my favorite shows of all time, a very, very short list of all time shows. And, you know, whatever it was, whether it was the fact that all the actors were very busy and they couldn't get them all in the same place at the same time. And so they kind of wrote to that and this very ambitious structure Mm -hmm. that they attempted, whatever it was, it just didn't capture the magic. It's probably all those things. Yeah. Yeah. Combination of all those things. You're probably right. And supposedly this time everybody is in the same place at the same time and it's going to be much more, uh, similar to how it was uh, in the you know in the original three seasons, so like a I'm real very TV optimistic. show. Yeah. yeah, I'm optimistic it's going to be great. Yeah, I, I mean this will be a, an instance of a show not only coming back a second time, but like the second time being better, like a phoenix rising from the ashes. 
Uh, I hope so. I'm really excited. Yeah. So there are flashes of brilliance in season four. There, there episode... is some good stuff in season four. It's just I think overall we're so disappointed because what two and three are like perfect. Yeah. Right. They are That's high watermarks that basically changed television forever. Uh, so yeah, it's hard. It's hard to live up to that. But season four, yeah, the, the episode where where um, Jason Bateman's character goes to college yep. to hang out with his son is oh, it is that episode is beautiful yeah, it's so I, funny I, I, arrest development uh, you know i'm in a relationship right now as you guys know uh, and arrest development is a touchstone of that relationship uh like every once or twice i see my significant other arrest development is quoted so we are <laughs> enormous fans of the show and uh but we as i might have mentioned in the past we always quote from seasons seasons one and two and three we never quote from season four right and yeah. how many times really good gauge. It's a really good gauge of how you know. memorable it is, right? I would say once a day, either my wife or myself will say, "It's tired in here." That's kind of our like <laughs> way of saying I want to go to sleep. What is, is that a course. reference to? That's um, when uh, <laughs> um, the brother, the brother with the with the hook for the hand. Oh, yeah, Buster. Uh, Buster. Buster. When <laughs> yeah. Buster's in the in the trunk of the car and they open it up and he's he's all passed out and he's like, I'm t- it's tired in here. Oh uh, yeah. That's great. So funny. Uh she she's gonna listen to my significant other's gonna listen to this episode and then she'll know instantly and shame me for not knowing that reference, Jeff. So <laughs> uh, anyway, let's move on with the rest of the show, gentlemen. Uh, let's talk about what we've been watching. I wanted to mention a few things. First of all, I had a chance to see Dunkirk again. Round two in IMAX laser. And uh, I did enjoy it more the second time around. You know, I think since we recorded an episode, we talked about how challenging it was to understand what was actually going on the first time. And second time, did not have that problem whatsoever. Uh, because we had already talked about it on the show and I'd done a bunch of reading about it. Uh, I did want to mention one thing that a lot of people emailed into us at slashfilmcast.gmail.com. We had expressed confusion about like why some scenes were shot using IMAX cameras mm-hmm. and other scenes were shot using regular cameras. And the answer is that the IMAX cameras are so loud that you basically cannot use any of the dialogue uh, from <laughs> any scenes you shoot with IMAX cameras. Wave of the future. Uh, well, right. IMAX cameras. Especially if you're close, right? Like if, you are, if the shot is very close to the people and you want to use their dialogue, you can't because the IMAX cameras are too loud. So anytime he wants... And, and Chris Nolan has said he doesn't like re-recording all the dialogue in post, which is what yeah, right. he has to do. Uh, he, he thinks it, it, like you, you don't get the same level of performance. Uh, so the shots that were done using regular aspect ratio were basically the shots where they used the audio that they captured that day. Uh, it kind of explains a lot about just the structure of the film overall and how little dialogue there is in it. Like yeah. if he sort of bought into the idea of making this a pure or as pure an IMAX film as he could, I think that may have actually informed the decision to make it as sparsely spoken as it is. Yeah, uh, I, I do wonder if that was part of the decision. Uh, mm-hmm. There's also uh, a, a, a note this week that like Christopher Nolan wanted to shoot it without having a script. Yeah, uh, you know, wanted to be mo- mostly improvised, and uh, I, I think that, that sounds actually, like a disaster. Well, yeah, well, especially <laughs> well, if you can't use audio that you captured on the day of, it'd be extreme, extremely challenging. Well, I think. I think when you say when you hear uh, mostly improvised, you you assume it's going to be like this 
crazy uh, thing where they just riff and they go. And, and I think a movie like this, it's not that it was going to be improvised mm-hmm. like a like let's write the dialogue as we go. It it's more like he, this movie didn't need a script per se. It, right. it is sure. it is about small moments of feeling, and there's so little dialogue in it anyway that it you can go a flow in chart, not a script. Exactly. It's a it's an outline. It's what are we shooting on this day. And that's enough. It, it improvise in the sense of the, you're in a situation, feel that, mm-hmm. and and go. You don't. There's not going to be a lot of talking anyway. So, you know. But but it's interesting because the 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 scene inside that submarine with all of the dudes like hiding in the submarine. Right. Or not yeah. submarine we'll, 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 we'll say that this is you know some this is some plot de- plot details for Dunkirk coming up. But I mean, um, I guess, we won't yeah. we won't spoil anything. But uh, I was going to say there's there's a scene with some soldiers inside a boat. Yeah, in a boat. All yep. cramped, kind of hiding. Yep. And th- that, as far as I remember, is all shot with IMAX. And there's a lot of talking in that scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I don't know. Uh, you know, I actually don't think that was mostly IMAX, Chef, now that I think of it. I it's hard that, to tell because that was that mostly was, like dark yeah, scene. Are you sure? Was, yeah. yeah like, Interesting. I don't know. I'm not 100% sure, but to my recollection, it was not. Uh, mostly IMAX in there. That that was actually well, the, another, it was it was the the ones that were definitely non IMAX were there's a bunch of stuff on the boat with Mark Rylance right that mm-hmm. was, right was that that I definitely remember and on the train like uh, right. at some point yeah, yeah. Uh, you know there's a bunch of other great emails we got but they're all very spoilery um, if we have time after the show I'd love to go over some of it with you guys I do want to just say one thing real quick uh, that's hopefully not spoilery. Uh, like, I don't think it's spoilery, but, you know, skip ahead 20 seconds if you are afraid. Um, but I did complain about the last shot of the film as being very strangely edited. And, uh, you know, hearing the voiceover context again for that shot, seeing some of the emails that were written in about this, uh, I actually think, yeah, the last shot really works for me now. Like, I've, I've come around to that, that final shot. Um, so I have more to say about that when we can talk about it in spoilers or maybe after the show. But, uh, you know, watching it again, definitely a great experience. But it was one of those things where I felt like I had to watch it. You know, it wasn't a thing where I went and really enjoyed myself, quote unquote. It was one of those <laughs> things where I felt like if I didn't go again, I would regret not having gone. You know, it's your duty. Yeah, because you, you just so rarely get to experience uh, uh, something in a movie theater like that just ever in your life. Yeah. And I knew, like, if I didn't go to IMAX a second time, I'd look back and say, oh, man, I can't believe I didn't go to IMAX a second time, right? Uh, and even though I didn't, like, it, it's, not a, it's not a movie you have fun with, right? As you said, Jeff, it's no. a movie you survive, right? So it's, it's not a movie you watch. You, it's a movie you survive. It's, it's, uh, there's a lot of unpleasantness, a lot of tension to it. Um, but, yeah, man, there's just nothing else like it this year uh, in terms of pure spectacle and tension. Uh, well, maybe Detroit for the tension. Yeah, I was just going to say, we're yeah. about to talk about one today that might yeah, rival it. Exactly, exactly. I uh, wanted to mention a couple other things uh, that I saw. Uh, well, I saw The Dark Tower. I already mentioned that. Did a spoiler review with uh, Matt Singer, uh, and you can find that on the Slash Filmcast feed. The Dark Tower was not a good movie. I think overall... I'm not going to see it, Dave. I'm not going. I'm a fan of the books, and I am much like I was with, and you may laugh at this reference, but much like I was with The Time Traveler's Wife... I'm just going to pretend like that movie was never made. The two <laughs> canonical movies that I know. <laughs> Jeff Kanata is going to avoid are The Dark Tower and The Time Traveler's Wife. I uh, loved The Time Traveler's Wife book, and I will, I will stand up for that to any man or woman who dares try to diss it. It's a great book, and I made me cry. All right, all right, fair enough. So uh, 
here's what I'll say. I remember, Jeff, when we talked about the Netflix original series Fuller House on the podcast. And <laughs> that movie broke your brain. You, you, like, I remember I just the TV remember, show. Yeah, the TV, TV show broke show. my brain. I'm sorry, yeah. the TV show, I should say. Uh, it broke your brain. I remember you being on the podcast and you said you, you could not find words to describe it. <laughs> you, right. you, you yeah. were saying, you said, it's nothing. It's not anything. It isn't That's anything. What, you just kept yeah. repeating that over and over again. Uh, <laughs> yeah. so something was broken inside you. That's right. And, yeah. uh, <laughs> and it, it, you know, the Dark Tower is not quite that bad, but leaving the theater, I had no words to describe it. it it's, it's nothing. <laughs> it, be, it, it evokes no emotion whatsoever. Yes. Uh, I mean, it, there, the way the movie moves, it goes so quickly. It's 88 minutes long. I mean, imagine, right, uh, you know, Peter Jackson made those three Lord of the Rings books into three movies. Then he made The Hobbit, which is one book, into three movies, right? So it's like four books into six movies, right? This is like the opposite of that? Yeah, imagine (laughs) making, like, what, seven books into one movie that's 88 minutes. Like One, imagine if, barely a movie. A movie. A movie. This is a movie. Like ninety minutes is kind of the minimum movie. This is below the minimum of movie. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, I mean, Jeff, you and I know that I roundly reject your ninety-minute movie. Minimum. <laughs> yes. Um, you know, I don't think we or should. Ma- be or I max. thought you were more of a maximum guy. <laughs> maximum more of a... guy. Yeah, that's right. I don't think uh, O.J. Made in America should be excluded from the Oscars. Uh, but yes, uh, eight novels, 4,250 pages, 88 minutes. Uh, I, I mean, to be fair, I believe, from, from my understanding, the movie is, is kind of a, a sequel to the story. Yeah, the it's, not, it's not a straight adaptation. Right, so it's not a straight adaptation, but... Still, you know, I mean, <laughs> if they had made all those books, like Lord of the Rings more. books and Hobbit, into one movie, you would say that's a travesty, and that movie probably wouldn't make very much of an impression. Um, that's what happens in this movie. Uh, My thing is, the movie just looks so cheap. Like that's the thing. Like it really looks like Matthew McConaughey and the Idris Elba just walking around New York, flinging magic things. Well, they, at each they other. are. <laughs> most of the New York filming takes place in like one block of New York. <laughs> Uh, and I mean, it is literally cheap. Like the yeah. budget is not sixty-five not million dollars, right? That's, that's insane. That's like that's a, like a romantic a, comedy budget half, these days. A half to a third of like a normal, like a Marvel film, right? It's like half the budget, yeah. if not a third of the budget of a Marvel film. Uh, and uh, it's, I, I, you know, I think there are interesting elements to it. Probably the biggest mistake they make is having uh, the kid be the main character, right? I believe in the right. books, the uh, gunslinger is actually the main character, right? Right. But in the movie... And the kid is is pretty much the most boring character in the books. <laughs> yeah, well, that's also kind of true of the film, too. The uh, 11-year-old named Jake Chambers, he is kind of, he's kind of the Neo of this movie, right? He's the, the audience surrogate yeah. that you find out about the world through. Uh, but he just simply does not have the chops to go up against Idris Elba. Like, they just don't, you know, Idris Elba is a great actor. Uh, I I don't think the kid who played Jake Chambers is is that bad. A lot of people have thought he's quite bad, Tom Taylor. Um, But uh, that's probably one of the biggest mistakes, of many mistakes. So (laughs) I don't, I don't really think this is worth watching. Maybe uh, if it comes on TV, it might be a curiosity for you to check out one day. Uh, and I've heard that the TV show, the TV series is still full steam ahead. So, so is the TV hmm. series linked to this film? 
or is it its own thing? I think it's. I thought it's that a, was going to be an adaptation. Like yeah, I think that is going to be a straight adaptation. So I think it's it's, it's all very. Convenient. But is it Idris Elba and Matthew McConaughey? I doubt it. I doubt it. Okay. Um, but Glenn Mazzara, so it's, it's, who did uh, two, Walking Dead season two, he's show running uh, Dark Tower right now. Yep. So these are two parallel versions. Nothing that, can that, go wrong with this plan. I think I, I was reading Eric Vespi's review over at Ain't It Cool, and it was heartbreaking uh, because for many people, not myself, I wasn't a huge, uh, you know, I've not, never read the Dark Tower books. But for many people, this is like the, the only shot they're going to get maybe in their lifetime to see this uh, book come to life on the big screen. Right? Right. Right. Uh, and they're not going to attempt it again for what? A decade, decades, maybe. Right? It's kind of like a Last Airbender situation when M Night ruined that movie. Like, oh yeah, we're we're mm-hmm. not going to see another Last Airbender for a while, and I don't think we're going to see a Dark Tower on the big screen for a while. But hopefully, the uh, the TV oh. series will redeem it. So, I yeah. actually think it could work better as a TV series. I mean, in oh, the, it has in the no question, yeah. no question, no question. Yeah. Only other thing I wanted to mention, I had a chance to see Bo Burnham's new comedy special, Make Happy, uh, on Netflix. Have you guys heard of Bo Burnham? He's a, he was an actor sure. in, yeah. Uh, yeah. in The Big Sick, right? Yeah. Funny uh, guy. Funny comedian. Very funny. Lachlan wrote into slashfilmcast at gmail.com. This is the first time I've ever sent any communication to any entertainment host of any kind, podcast, <laughs> television, radio, or otherwise. But I felt compelled to make sure you knew about a particular stand-up special released on Netflix this year, or last year, I should say. Based on your recent recommendation for Hassan Minaj, I checked it out and was really impressed. For me, I love when you can tell that a comedian is treating comedy like a true art worth perfecting, a valuable craft. And that's exactly my perception of Hassan's act. So I wanted to ensure you see or have already seen Bo Burnham's Make Happy on Netflix. It is quite simply a stand-up comedy masterpiece. I have never had an emotional response like I did with that special. I have probably watched it 20 times now, and the ending still affects me every time. Based on your love of stand-up and your reaction to Hassan, I think you'd really enjoy Bo Burnham's Make Happy. Side note, I hate all his other stuff. He is young, immature. He was young, immature, and I truly loathe his previous specials. But Make Happy is a game-changer for stand-up. I highly recommend checking it out if you haven't already. Uh, end quote. So that comes in from Lachlan. Uh, well, Lachlan, now that you've broken the seal, you're just going to be sending emails to hosts of things all over the place. Yeah, that was the first of 18 emails Lachlan wrote in this week. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> uh, but make happy, guys. It uh, it really uh, affected me. I have to say, uh, it is. You know how you were talking about Oh Hello being a a deconstruction of a Hollywood's uh, Broadway special, I should say, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Make Happy is a deconstruction of a comedy stand-up special. I've uh, got to see this. And it's, he'll do things like he'll get the audience all riled up in a lather. You know, like he'll, he'll get them chanting and doing things and then turn it against the audience. So it, like make the audience feel stupid uh, and also make them laugh. And, and he does this repeatedly throughout the course of the show. It's, he's, he's almost like making fun of the idea of a comedy special altogether. Uh, throughout many, many instances in, in the show. And as someone who, who loves comedy specials, I really enjoyed that. I think if you haven't seen that many comedy specials in your life, this is not a good one to start on, you know, or if you, you have stayed away from them for a while, this is not a good one to get reintroduced to them. Do you know what I'm saying? Right. But if you are very familiar with, the speci- with specials in general, then Bo Burnham's Make Happy is something that I think uh, you will enjoy. So, oh, man, I got to see that. I'm such a huge fan of stand-up. I... I 
I'm very excited to see this. Yeah, I think it's uh, – and he does a lot of uh, singing as well. And uh, I think the singing is actually very good. Like the last two songs – the last two songs of the special, I, c- I couldn't get them out. I kept re- – I re-listened to them dozens of times after I saw the special. Like that's – usually, you know, when someone sings during a special or like, you know, Zach Galifianakis does his music thing during a comedy special, you know, you don't necessarily go back and like listen to those songs for the melody, but like – the stuff right. that he performs here, I actually enjoyed listening to it as a song. Uh, and it's, it's very good, in my opinion. Um, very clever and worth your time if you are into stand-up. So that's Bo Burnham's Make Happy. Jeff, would love to hear what you think about it. Yeah, I'll uh, definitely put this at the top of my list. Jeff, you've been watching. <laughs> Just make sure you don't watch it with your wife, okay, Jeff? Because um, <laughs> our, history, our history of uh, me recommending things for you two is bad. But <laughs> It's true. Jeff, what have you been watching on Netflix this week? I caught a Netflix original film uh, called The Incredible Jessica James. Uh, this stars Jessica Williams, who people probably know as the former Daily Show correspondent, Jessica Williams. And uh, I was always a huge fan of her on The Daily Show. I think she's charming and funny and quick and and really an effective uh, correspondent. But this is... A narrative film. This is a romantic comedy, and she shoulders the lead role. She is the movie rises and falls on her performance, and uh, she's delightful. She is, I think, going going to be a breakout star. This movie is short and sweet and just a lovely, simple little movie. Yeah, it's not going to change the world. It's not the best movie I've ever seen. But it's delightful. It's a really pleasant way to spend an evening, especially with a loved one. I thought it was very funny. I thought it was very uh, charming. And even better, her talent shines through in in this movie. She plays a character who, on the page, written, I can only imagine, comes off very unlikable. Uh, She (laughs) is a character that really thinks highly of herself. Uh, there's a scene where uh, a character tells her, like, I, you know, they're kind of having an argument, and the guy's like, "I really like you," and she goes, "I know, everybody likes me. I'm super dope." You know, it's <laughs> and she's like that, and constantly throughout the thing, she she speaks very highly of herself, and with a, an actress who is not as charming and fun and likable as she, that might be a, a, a something where you're like, "Well, that's this this chick is a total B," you know, like, "Well, get over yourself," or whatever. But she just it, it, she's just so lovable and wonderful to watch. I, I mean, from the very first moment of this movie, where you know she says some very unlikable things and then breaks into dance, it, it is um, it's a very charming film. It's it's not you know it's not, like I said, it's not the best movie of the year, but it's very watchable and very fun and very sweet, and I really liked it. That's the incredible Jessica James Devinder. You saw this too, right? I did, and uh, I really enjoyed it as well. It is very sweet. Uh, it's a movie, you know, it's a romantic comedy, but it's also a movie about chasing your dreams and that struggle and, you know, being beaten down with rejection. This is a movie, rejection is like a big part of this film. And what I think is really interesting about it is that, you know, this character just like keeps getting back up. You know, she has this idea about herself like, yeah, she's freaking dope. And, you know, it's, it's the sort of thing like sometimes you have to think of yourself 
as like, oh, you're actually good at what you do and recognize that about yourself to, you know, survive the shitstorm that is daily life these days. Um, so, yeah, I, re- I loved all that about the film. I found it really inspiring. Also really like Chris O'Dowd as the uh, romantic interest in this. Yeah, he's uh, great. Just, Love seeing that guy all over the place. I love that he had, uh, you know, he was a big hit in Bridesmaids. He's also in Girls for a bit, but I know him as Roy from the IT crowd. It is just so weird to see that guy as like a viable romantic interest in movies now because he was just like a slovenly Irish IT dude, you know, in that show. <laughs> and it's a great show. I love it. Uh, I I just think like you know he he represents hope for yeah, all the I mean, nerds I guess in a way he's slovenly in the way that like Tina Fey is slovenly do you know I mean <laughs> she's not at have all have you seen that's the what, IT crowd but that's what I'm saying is like there's these people that like the show is trying to convince you that this person's ugly but uh, I mean you know, the, I have you seen the IT crowd I Dave? have I have I don't think <laughs> it's one of those situations he's not a handsome he's a, he's a good looking dude. But, you know, in the IT crowd, like, he is wearing, like, his dirty T-shirts. Like, he's slovenly in the way that a geeky guy can be slovenly, right? And I think everybody, you clean them up a little, everybody can look a little dapper, you know? I think we just learned just you and I me. have very different preferences, <laughs> Devendra, when it comes, yeah. to, comes, when to, it comes to men. Yeah. Clearly. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, all right. Well, that's the incredible Jessica James. It's available on Netflix right now. Devendra, what else have you been watching this week? I saw the first episode of The Sinner which is a new show on USA of all networks. And it, it's sort of like a murder mystery. It is, it's sort of like the night of, except a little different. Uh, it stars Jessica Biel as a seemingly normal housewife and mother who one day decides to stab a guy to death on a beach. And that's how the show opens. <laughs> and you know, that's real. Like, you know, that happened. Everybody sees it. She says she did it. You know, all that is clear. The mystery is like, what? Why? <laughs> what? Why did you do this? It's a what um, done it. <laughs> it's a what done it. Yeah. And that's really that's really it. Like we're trying to figure out oh, what is going on with this lady because we get hints that she's not like fully satisfied with her life and like she feels a little maybe a little trapped in her marriage. Um, I think uh, this show, it's just I like this sort of thing. I, I like murder mysteries. And um, we the murder is not the mystery here. It's more like, yeah, why did it happen? So I am on board with that. I think it's stylish, uh, decently well written. Bill Pullman is here, too, as the requisite detective with issues. Um, and instead of having uh, issues uh, with his feet like uh, like the lawyer did in the night of, he has issues with his hands because he likes to pay ladies to step on his hands. So that's mm. a thing. Okay. Uh, I like Bill Pullman in this, too. Like, the show, like, it is not the sort of thing you'd expect to see from USA. It is pretty gruesome, uh, you know. But it, I think along with Mr. Robot, it shows, like, this is network trying to do very different things. Uh, it's only eight, eight episodes long, I believe. And for now, I'm along for the ride. It's interesting enough. And I think Jessica Biel is very good in it as well. So that's The Sinner. It's on USA, right? Yep. All right. That's what we've been watching this week. But guys, let's move on um, to our next segment. And before we get to that, I, I want to mention this email that we got in from Chris from Maryland, who writes into slash filmcast at gmail.com. Hello. One year ago, I wrote in the story of how I found digital movie codes and DVDs I checked out at the library. A movie-related, morally questionable activity I shared with you guys. It was fun to hear some of my favorite hosts discuss my silly story, but soon after, the Slash Film cast had a new segment, Slash Film Court. Now every time you guys do the segment, I feel <laughs> proud knowing I was the muse that inspired the segment, and I look forward to another year of movie-related petty crimes. 
end quote. Uh, so yeah, one year of the Slash of Color. Also, Chris says, after you guys read my email, I never came across another digital code in the movies I checked out ever again. There must have been a librarian slash filmcast fan in my area. <laughs> <laughs> so they all put a stop to that. Yeah, um, but yeah, one year of the Slash Film Court uh, intermittently happening on the podcast, guys. Uh, and boy, what adventures we've had. But let's go on another one today as we get to this week's episode of The Slash Film Court. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Slash Film Court is the quasi-weekly segment where we adjudicate your movie-related dilemmas. You can always write into us at slashfilmcast at gmail.com with your dilemmas. And this one comes in from Felidia Featherbottom, who writes in, I previously asked the court to rule on the case of my friend who buys the $1 upcharge soda size and then does not finish it. I was grateful for the court's swiftness in declaring him a monster, and I hope that the court will again, uh, in its abiding wisdom, find in my favor. However, I must ask for the recusal of one of the judges because this is a case against him. I speak of the Honorable David Chen. Honorable? (laughs) This is like one of those episodes of Law & Order where it's like, the cop is on trial. (laughs) Oh, man. You have to recuse yourself, Chen. It is summer, and the city where I live shows outdoor movies in a nearby park. You grab some lawn chairs, spread a blanket, and enjoy a picnic as the sun sets. Perhaps your kids come, and at dusk you all watch Raiders of the Lost Ark or Rogue One or The Prince's Bride. At least, this is what I imagine I have never been. David Chen, who is my fiancé, twist, loves movies. Twist! <laughs> However, I, by the it, way, I'm shocked that you are engaged to Miss Featherbottom. <laughs> I know, it's, it is quite a surprise. However, he likes to... What would you say? I think you should take her name. Uh, yeah, I'll think about that. Uh, however, it is. Uh, however, he likes to watch movies in a very controlled way and is distracted when they are not shown on a good screen with good sound and minimal interruption. This has led to an immediate veto whenever I suggest movies in the park. He hypothesizes that the projection will not be clear enough and the sound inaudible, or worse still, punctuated by the screams <laughs> of children. I agree that most movies you said are not... Screams. You said screams, but her word is squeals. Squeals, yes. Yeah. Sometimes Which I is a much more positive word. Eh. I agree that most movies are not a good fit for this type of screening, but I posit that the movies at these events are generally familiar, crowd-pleasing classics that are almost uh, like friendly background noise. One does not go to lose oneself in the cathedral-like hush of a darkened cinema. One goes to laugh with a crowd when Indy says he's afraid of snakes, or cheer together when Donnie Yen fights off stormtroopers, or recite as one when, or recite as one when Mandy Patinkin says, well, Hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. I know that this court has a well-established body of judgments against interruptions and distractions during movies. However, the judges have also advised that some movie-going experiences are exceptions and are actually enhanced by a participatory crowd, Uh such as in the case of Get Out. I asked the court to tell my fiancé that he should join me at an outdoor movie this summer in the spirit of experimentation uh, to at least try out a different way to enjoy the medium we both love. (laughs) Mm. Well, guys, uh, I'm going to leave it to you. What what say you guys about this case? You have no standing here because, mm-hmm. yeah, of course, going to see a movie outside isn't going to be great. But that's, that's not the point. You're outside and you're watching a movie. 
It's like impossible. You, that that shouldn't be happening. So you're Dave, really just there to enjoy I, that. I, I do need to say Dylan Schwan in the in the chat room says the email isn't even done yet, and I'm on David's side. When I pay for the experience outside my home, and the viewing exp- <laughs> conditions aren't close to a minimum of very good, I'm out. Uh, well, I, I agree, Dylan. That being said, the, most of these movies are free. I'm pretty sure. Free. What are you? Yeah, and also think about the experience, right? You, you got to think about the 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 value of the experience. You're not going there to see a movie. You're going there to sit outside and see a movie. Like that. That's kind of all of it. I have two things to say. First of all. The uh, you are not it would be a completely different situation if you are going to see a film for the first time sure. in an outdoor uh, theater ex- going experience like this. If you're if you have never seen Raiders of the Lost Ark before and your your significant other says, oh, my God, it's one of my favorite movies. You should come with me. Uh, by all means, say, no, I want to see it in a better way for my first time. I'm right. all in <laughs> favor of that. That's clearly not what's happening here because Dave has seen all of these movies that she has referenced. So I would support someone saying I want to value that my first viewing in a much more conducive environment. Second thing I want to say is, David, when you you have many times, in fact, I think even this week, you have gone to an outdoor venue with a whole lot of other people to listen to music yep. that you have heard before that you enjoy. I guarantee you the auditory experience of that music is much better on your home stereo or in your noise-canceling earphones. But you go to watch a live concert in an outdoor venue for completely different reasons than pure audio quality. You go – for the experience of see, being there with the crowd, seeing it live, having this kind of communal relationship with art that you love. And that is what the outdoor movie-going experience is about. So mm, This isn't even a debate. This is not a debate. <laughs> we we hereby like smackdown. Yeah. Yeah. By the power vested in us, Devendra and I hereby <laughs> sentence you to going to one of these outdoor movies. All right. All right. Well, <laughs> our, our judgment through. is final, David. You know, I'm actually actually not like that opposed to this idea. It's more just something that I I haven't really been feeling. You know what I'm saying? It's not as I'm categorically opposed to it. So I think I think I should have caveated this by saying, you know, there there would have been less dramatic tension that way. But I uh, it's not something I'm categorically opposed to. I just haven't felt it this summer, especially (laughs) because there's been other stuff that we've needed to watch. But okay, yeah, yeah, I hear you guys. I hear you guys. Give give it a shot. shot. That being said, though, it, I would love for the outdoor movie experience to be perfect, right? Imagine, like, we had that technology, and we uh, – I just saw Samsung. Like, the, they created, like, a 30-foot-wide cinema screen that's just, like, a big LED display. Imagine something like that where you don't even have to worry about the projection. You're actually watching a clear image and have good sound on a rooftop or something. That would be amazing. I'd be down so for that. So all, all you got to do is take an outdoor environment like that, uh-huh. put a roof on it, four walls around it. Nice, like nice, good seats and like a like a stadium seating kind of Maybe configuration. Maybe get some AC in there. That's helpful. Yeah, AC. That's really good. And have like aisles and like cup holders. Gotta have food. Gotta and have food. And put it in a building. Yeah, that serves food. And um, man, that I think this is a really an idea that could take off, guys. Yeah, I mean, one day, you, one you, day, you take this home, throw it in a pot, add some broth, a potato, baby, you've got a stew going. <laughs> anyway. 
Uh, Chris Yee Mon in the chat room says, I live in Dave's town, and I know the outdoor cinema the writer's referring to. I saw Moana for the first time there. It worked out fine. So <laughs> It was fine. It, yeah, it was fine. It worked out well. It's interesting. Uh, I actually uh, – there's a park walking distance from my house uh, where we just moved in in January, and they do this. They just had – last weekend, they just had Rogue One, and uh, I really wanted to go, but uh, I have a baby. So we, we would get like 15 minutes in the movie and then have to yeah. leave. So That is a perfect – thing to bring a baby to though by the way or if it, like when the child is a little older like yeah because bringing kids to an actual theater is a nightmare so outdoor is actually great all right guys well the slash film court has ruled again dave is sentenced <laughs> to go see a movie outdoors i was gonna say uh, david that there you know there are things like outdoor movies where the environment is doesn't have to be perfect to get the most enjoyment out of them but there are other things where you do want the environment to be perfect. And one of those things I would argue is sleep. You want your sleep to be the best it can possibly be. It defines your day. It defines your whole life, in fact. And I would argue that you wouldn't want to just throw a cot down outdoors. And in the same way, you wouldn't want to settle for some crappy mattress that you've been using for years and years that's worn out. You probably don't even know how bad your sleep is if you've been using the same mattress for a long, long time. But luckily, our sponsor is there to get your back, literally, because your back is probably going to feel better. It did for me when I switched to a Casper mattress. Casper is a sleep brand that created one perfect mattress and sold it directly to customers. Why? Well, that eliminates commission-driven inflated prices. You no longer have to go into these big uh, warehouse stores and make a decision quickly by laying down on something for a few minutes and trying to decide, yeah, that's the uh, mattress I want. I'm going to spend thousands of dollars on this while the the uh, salesperson hovers needily right in front of me waiting for me to make a decision. Ah, nobody likes that. It's not fun. It doesn't actually lead to getting you the best sleep, which is really the goal here. That's why Casper made a great mattress and then decided to sell it online. And the way you get it is it's delivered right to your house. It unfurls. Uh, I actually did this. You slice it open. It unfurls right there in your house. It's super easy. And then you get to sleep on it for 100 nights before you have to decide whether or not you want to keep it or not. It's completely risk-free if in any time during that 100-night home trial, you decide this isn't the mattress for you. They'll come back. They'll pick it up and refund your money. That's how confident they are that this actually will improve your sleep and improve your life. And you don't have to take my word for it. Take the word of my co-hosts. You guys have done this, right? Yeah. Uh, I'm a big fan. I sleep on a Casper mattress every night. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And the shopping experience, you know, the experience of opening it up, it opens like a – like a caterpillar unfolding before you, right? Yeah, and there's nothing you want to sleep on more than a caterpillar. Yeah, yeah seriously. Nice and cozy. Yeah. It comes in a so. tiny box. If you live in a walk-up, it is actually the best way to get a mattress. So yeah. Oh, that's perfect. right. It's actually easier than getting an actual ma- yeah, mattress yeah. from a store. So right? much easier. Yeah. And when you move, it's, it's light. It's so easy to move around. Yeah, that's cool. So over 20,000 reviews with an average of 4.8 stars Casper is quickly becoming the internet's favorite mattress. Free shipping and returns in the U.S. and Canada. It's designed, developed, and assembled here in the U.S. of A. And this is going to be something that's going to improve your sleep. It certainly improved mine. 
even better than that, we're going to give you $50 off your mattress. That's pretty great. All you got to do is go to casper.com slash filmcast and use the promo code filmcast to save 50 bucks off. Plus, it'll let them know that it's a good idea to sponsor our show, which we appreciate. Casper.com, C-A-S-P-E-R.com slash filmcast and the promo code filmcast to get yourself $50 off. We want to thank Casper for supporting us for this episode of the podcast. We also want to thank all of our donors. Uh, thanks to Noah Roberts from McMinnville, Oregon, Ryan R. from Mesa, Arizona, Joseph Bisquiti, and Wade Breslin, as well as Jacob Flores. Thanks so much for your contributions. Thanks also to subscribers at the rate of $2 per month. Ellen Skirvin, Design Department Partners, LLC, Ryan Crisp, David Sisbaro, Joseph Johnson, and Philip Heaney. This is Acast Recommends. Every week we pick one of our favorite shows, and this is one we think you're going to love. Who exploded Vivian Stone? Was it Screen Hunk McSalad? Mother's Digest called me dependably erotic. Leading Lady Joanna Shoebags. Oh, you call me dramatic again, I will die! First time director Wallace Byrne Matravers. I think I'll just keep my clothes on for now. Assistant director Laura Side Salad. If I can help you direct this film, I can certainly help direct your winkle. Technician James Wigington. You've got a funny way of addressing a man holding a power drill. Or someone else entirely. Listen in to find out who exploded Vivian Stone. Acast is home to the biggest podcasts from the UK and around the world. Subscribe to this show and hundreds more now via Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. You guys are all awesome. You, if you want to support us, go to SlashFilm.com, click on the SlashFilmCast tab, use the PayPal links on the side of the page. Uh, all the money you contribute goes to helping us defray the cost of seeing movies, which can be pretty expensive, and also putting on the show. So we really appreciate it, folks. Uh, but let's get to our review today of Catherine Bigelow's newest film, Detroit. I assume this is about what went on at the motel. What happened at the motel? You don't know, I tell you. I was working security by Wisconsin. And on Tuesday night, we heard gunfire coming from the area near the Algiers. Police was there. There was a lot of shooting. When I went in there, three kids had been killed. No. So they were killed right before you got there. You carry a 38, right? That was from the trailer for Detroit, the new film by writer Mark Bull, director Catherine Bigelow, the team that brought you The Hurt Locker. I'm going to read the plot summary from Wikipedia. A police raid in Detroit in 1967 results in a multi-day riot. This story is centered on the Algiers Motel incident, which occurred on Detroit, Michigan on July 25, 1967, during the racially charged 12th Street riot. Um, so that's the plot summary of the movie. And before we continue, we should say that, yeah, uh, this is a real life event based off a real life event, but, uh, none of us, uh, on the podcast knew the details of the event. We saw the movie as a way of kind of informing Mm -hmm. ourselves of the event. And, uh, so we are, we are not going to have spoilers for the real life event. Uh, you know, at the beginning we'll have a spoiler section. I mean, the movie's 
is structured like a conventional thriller, so it, it is actually kind of easy to to separate it into spoilers and non-spoilers, but you know, it, it is based off a real-life event, and obviously there were real consequences, real people involved, so I want to just acknowledge that up front. All that being said, Jeff Kanata, earlier we talked about how uh, this movie is p- perhaps one of the only movies that comes out this summer that's more tense than Dunkirk. I, mm-hmm. I tweeted that this movie makes Dunkirk look like a walk in the park. Uh, <laughs> and, and, a walk uh, on the beach. <laughs> yeah, curious what you thought of that. Do, do you think this movie... Uh, is better at generating tension than Dunkirk? If not better, it's it's equal. I mean, they, they are they are both very tension filled, and and uh, I it may be better. Uh, it, they're they do it in different ways. Right. Uh, I find this movie ramps more slowly into the tension, and once it's there, it is heightened. This movie crescendos in a very very lengthy scene. It is really one scene with a movie sort of bookending it <laughs> you know yeah. what i mean yeah. but that that scene is harrowing and emotionally distressing and powerful beyond words and i would even say this guys has stayed with me more than dunkirk has mm-hmm. uh i really yeah. you know i was really affected by dunkirk but no, that does not compare to how i was affected by Detroit. It has, it, it shook me, uh, watching it and it has stayed with me in the days that have followed, excuse me. Um, and I mean, it's, it's an incredible piece of filmmaking. Uh, it is a two hour and a half movie. I think it probably could have been shorter. It's a very oddly structured yeah, film. It's very weird. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There, there's like 20 minutes at the beginning where there's no characters, there are no, there's no, you don't meet any of the people that you are going to follow in this movie in the, in the first 20 minutes. You're just, it's just setting up the sort of environment in which this drama is going to take place. And I didn't know anything about this movie when I went into it. So I was very, I didn't know what, what, what I was in for. Yeah, the, you know, first, I was like, is uh, this the first like 30 to 60 minutes is very confusing. You don't know what story this movie is going to tell, right? You it's a documentary who, basically yes, for a while. Yeah. yeah. Very much so. It is very much a a, um, a dramatized documentary, and actually they use quite a bit of real news footage and mm-hmm. and imagery. and And I found all of that very effective. But also, it's a strange way to be brought into this tale because you don't know, you know, in it, it, it kind of breaks all the rules of filmmaking, which is you know you got to find you got to meet your main character pretty early and, and establish a connection with your main character as, as you bring the audience through the movie. This movie doesn't do that. It, it is, it is, it creates a, a backdrop first and then brings you into the, to the characters. And I, I don't know, I, I, for some, some reason it, it really worked for me and mm-hmm. uh, I liked feeling a little off kilter and uh, didn't know how, what was happening until I was, in it with these characters. And then once you're in the meat of what this movie is, it is absolutely harrowing. It is a harrowing experience and one that I think can change the world. You know, I don't want to overstate it, but it's one of those things where movies have a unique position and a, a really narrative in general storytelling mm-hmm. art has a unique power to put you in the shoes of other people. And this movie, I think, does that in such an effective way. The performances across the board are excellent. 
The filmmaking is excellent. It is truly a remarkable movie that I don't think is perfect. I think it could be shorter. I think after we leave that sort of tension-filled area, it loses a little of its pace and it I, I, it kind of stumbles, I think, a bit in trying to give us uh, a wrap up and 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 show where these people have gone with their lives. And I think a lot of it feels a little. I mean, there's such a such a release after this big scene in the center that it almost feels like okay, I'm I'm so spent. I don't have it in me to spend another 40 minutes <laughs> of movie. Um, and yet that's what's asked. And so I, I think it could have been trimmed and been a little leaner on its edges, but that's not to take away from what is an extraordinary film. All right. The Vinger Hardwar. Yeah. So Catherine Bigelow and Mark Bull gave us two of the best post nine 11 war movies ever, right? Like uh, tremendous films, zero dark 30, that is a movie I still think about. That's a movie I revisit quite a bit. Like that movie is just astounding because of what it does and how it's just kind of incredible to me that, you know, they come back and they make this movie, which is about the war at home, basically. Like this has all the trappings of the war films we've seen from them, but also a lot of the documentary side of it as well. It's a piece of journalism. It's a piece of, uh, you know, storytelling and quite a bit of activism, too. There's a lot, you know, I loved about it. Like, I, I'm just kind of astounded that this thing exists like it is. Um, it's not a movie that I think uh, you can easily recommend to people. That's the thing. Like, it's so harrowing. It is, it is just a very strange thing because you're put in a place um, where you're you're seeing police brutality pretty much up close. It, you know, it is, and you, you, it is uh, law enforcement mm-hmm. as a horror film. It is pretty much. It, is, yeah. it plays out like a horror movie, but the uh, the people coming to kill you are law enforcement officers, right? Yeah. And I don't know if that's even. I think that's mis- a misleading way I, to put it. I, but. I mean, I I disagree strongly. I mean, I think if you look at like a like a saw movie, like this is mm-hmm. very similar to a saw movie. People trapped in a very small space. Uh, yep. Someone tormenting them slowly. You know. Uh, potentially. I saw the trailer for Eli Roth's. Um, Death, Death wish, wish right before this. And I was like, it is so weird. Yeah. Like that, that movie is entirely all like, you know, it, it is pure, like uh wish fulfillment is pure, like, you know, taking the law into your own hands and going around killing people. And Eli Roth is known for his torture porn as well. That was just a weird juxtaposition to this film, which I think, you know, people have called it a little torture porn E because it is very gruesome, but I think it serves a purpose. I think it is, telling us like it is really putting us in the shoes of these characters and it's it's terrifying so i think this is a very important film um just because it tells us you know about uh something that most people don't quite know about you know i knew about the detroit riots i didn't know about this specific situation and it's horrific and the way it's portrayed here is just excellently done like uh, great actors and i think uh, everything about the situation is told um very well so we're bringing a lot of comparisons to dunkirk i kind of felt that too uh dunkirk is a movie entirely about its experience right you're surviving that movie and yeah. in so many ways i felt like i had to survive this and there well, aren't and like they're both about situations where like people are trapped in a, a, yeah. a small space with like kind of the odds closing in against them and they're doing everything they can to escape and uh, and a lot of it, you know, or s- s- parts of it play out in r- seemingly real time. You know what I mean? Yeah. So uh, I, I, yeah. I, I, before we, before we get too far away from from the comment, I, I I do think just calling it a 
a horror film is, is it diminishes it. Well, to it's my, the, to my I'm mind. just think sort of like when I think that's what Dave is saying too. Like yeah, it's well, not. Tell, tell me why you think it diminishes yeah. it, Jeff. I I don't. I mean, I, I clearly the villain in this film is a monster. There's no doubt. Mm-hmm. But I don't think the movie treats it like treats him or them like horror monsters. I think there there is more understanding and more insight into into those people mm-hmm. than you would find in your typical horror film. But I, I think that's what makes it truly horrifying, Jeff. Like, the, well, I'm not the, saying it's not horrifying. Yeah. I'm yeah, just yeah. saying to call it like a, a horror movie where sure, Jason sure. or Freddy is is a cop. I, I, I feel I, like I that. See. I think I think you're yeah. reading like my calling it yeah. like a, a horror film as some kind of pejorative in some way. Like that's, that, that just that's, feels that like somehow semantics. makes it like not a masterpiece or something. But that's not that's not my intention. Okay, um, fair I enough. just think I think it like the the feel of it, you know, uh, mm-hmm. the structure, at least this the one scene you're talking about, it it, fe- it feels a lot like a horror film is what I'm trying. It's to. a nail biting, yeah. really tense experience. Like I felt for sure all the same emotions I felt uh, similar to Dunkirk, but also similar to Get Out and similar to a lot of horror films as well. Uh, the real horror of this movie is that you know nothing has changed. Like that's what it is. This movie is a wake up call in so many ways to a lot of people to, you know, things people are still afraid of today, Um, even in a normal city or a normal suburban environment. Like these are things that people of color are kind of afraid of all around the country. And it gets that perspective very well. So, yeah, astounding on that level. I have a bunch of thoughts. I think this movie is uh, somewhat problematic and I I will get into how (laughs) in the in the spoilers. I love that um, phrase, somewhat problematic, by the way, because you could throw it at everything. Yeah, these days, no, that's but, yeah. true. That's true. I, yeah. I think it's problematic in specific ways, and I'll talk yep. about that during the spoilers. Um, but in the meantime, I will echo what you guys are saying. You know, I had a uh, epiphany is not the right word. I don't know. It was kind of a an awe-inspiring moment when I was watching mm-hmm. Zero Dark Thirty. Now, I, I did not like that movie as much as you, Devendra. Um, I thought like most of it was was not super interesting, but the last hour, which takes place almost mm-hmm. entirely in real time, is one of the most tense pieces of filmmaking I've ever seen in my life. And it was of a story that I already knew the ending to. Like that yes. everyone in the whole world yeah. knows, the, knows the ending to. And when I watched it play out, I just I was in awe of how incredible this filmmaker Catherine Bigelow is. Like that, that, that she could take something that you already know pretty much exactly how it ends uh, and make it into something that you're on the edge of your seat for. Mm-hmm. And I I feel like, you know, between that and the Hurt Locker, no that's how, that's By the way, that's how I felt about United 93. Yeah, yeah. Another, another great yeah. example. Another great example. But yeah, uh, between that and the Hurt Locker, I feel like very few filmmakers are better at generating tension than Catherine Bigelow. And mm-hmm. I think you certainly see that here in Detroit. This is a movie that I was incredibly uncomfortable watching that I... Uh, was just filled with this dread the entire time I was watching it. And the central scene that you're talking about, I actually think is masterful filmmaking. It's painful to endure. Uh, And I think there's a very legitimate question of, given the pain, is it worth it? You know, and this is a question that you asked when we watched It Comes at Night, Jeff. You know, we had just gone through this horrifying experience watching It Comes at Night. And it's like, well, what's the message at the end of that? And we kind of, you know, I I threw out some messages for you, but it wasn't super satisfying. You know, like what what the messages were for for, of that movie. 
And uh, I think the message is much more clear here. Well, yes. yeah, but I feel like well, you know, I, I, we can get more into detail about this in the spoilers. But ultimately, I feel as though I have questions about that. You know, I, I think a lot of people have questions like, was it, the the message that it's conveying could it have been conveyed in a different way? Was it yeah. worth? Uh, you know, putting the audience through all that to convey a message that a lot of people are already aware of that you can see just by watching the news every night. Uh, I think that is is a legitimate question about about this movie. But uh, I want to say more about that before we get into that. Though, uh, are there any other thoughts you guys have before we move into spoilers about this movie? Any um, anything you want to uh, mention, or shall we just get into the spoilers? Uh, a couple of things. I mean, this movie is controversial on many levels, and I think we're going to talk about some of that in the spoilers. Uh, but I do remember when this project was announced, uh, there was some pushback to like, you know, Catherine Bigelow and Mark Ball telling the story because this is, a, you know, this is a story that seems ripe for an African-American filmmaker to take and do something with. Uh, and I think like that, that pushback, I think, made a lot of sense. And it was good that we're in a place where we're talking about that as a culture now, too. Uh, but I have to say, like uh, Catherine Bigelow, and Mark Ball, like these are two very seasoned artists in terms of what they're doing and how they're doing it. And I think the movie shows that, you know, they did a very capable job of conveying the horror of this situation and really like driving this message home. Uh, there are definitely things that probably could have been changed and probably some issues with how they portrayed some of the violence, which we'll talk about in spoilers. But I have to say like, you know, at the end of the day, like these are incredible. This is incredible director and a you know a great writer and they've had a great partnership and they've delivered some great films for us so i you know I, i'm glad they ended up well like i think a team this strong can tell a story like this for sure all right well again i have much more to say about this so if we can move to spoilers happy to dive Go. into it with you Dimitri. so let's talk about spoilers for detroit starting right now now you're looking for the secret i'm gonna see this coming no but you won't find it because of course they're not gonna see this coming you're not really looking i have been Puzzling over how it works. You don't really want to work it out. Who's in the box? I have been dying to tell you. I want to tell you my secret. You want to be fooled. Devendra, you alluded to some of the controversy around this movie, and uh, I, I've read a ton of articles about this. A uh, lot, lot of people, people have thoughts, spe- yes. speaking out against this movie. I think it's a completely legitimate point of view to believe that that they should not have made this movie. I, sure. yeah. I yeah, don't yeah. I don't personally agree with that point of view. But I think what you're hearing, especially like there's a lot of people like minorities. Um, I saw Angelica Jade wrote a piece for RogerEbert.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, Wesley Morris on his podcast uh, has you know expressed that he's not a huge fan of the movie. On um, still processing, yeah. Right, on still processing, right. And uh, we should say that like we have no real standing to talk about this like we're not none of us on the podcast are african-americans so like i'm going to just start with that and say uh we're commenting kind of as people who don't have uh, a stake in this fight necessarily uh but i will just say that i think this recent election uh has made it so that uh conventional like white allyship like is no longer good enough like you it's no longer sure. good enough yeah, for yeah, just yeah. like white people to be like oh hey uh well they're trying their best and even if they didn't hit all the right notes it's okay because they're trying their best i i think there's a lot of um people of color who feel uh very burned by white people a majority mm-hmm. of which voted for donald trump 
I think that there is reason to ask, should white people be telling this story? Um, should white people be profiting off of telling a story of black pain? And whatever position you take, I would just encourage you to listen to what is out there, listen to people's pain that they are expressing in raw form about why they don't think uh, this movie should have been made or it shouldn't have been made in the yep. way it is. Now, that being said, I happen to agree with Devendra on this one. I, I think it's better that this movie exists than it not existing. This movie is made for white people. The a poster of the movie says, it's time we knew. Who is we in that equation, right? Because uh, I'm pretty sure black people know about police brutality. I'm right. pretty sure... This movie like, isn't telling them much new. Ex- that's what I'm saying. Is like, is yeah. like, if you are... Uh, a person of color that is harassed and you're, you know, people, uh, your people slaughtered repeatedly, unpunished by law enforcement officers. On video. On yeah, video. Unpunished. Right? Then yeah. I don't know that Detroit is really going to add to your understanding of the world. Um, and is it worth enduring an experience as horrible and as taxing mm-hmm. as Detroit uh, to gain not that much more understanding? I, I don't yep. know if it is. Uh, but. But, Jeff Kanata, to your point, if uh, more white people saw Detroit, if more white people uh, were clued in to uh, some of the things that black people go through in their interactions with law enforcement, would the world be better? I think so. And uh, I understand if people out there disagree with that position, but like, mm-hmm. I, I think, yeah, white people watching this movie is, is ultimately a good thing for the world. I would also, say, yeah. I would also say that I, I think the argument comes down to, like, sh- should this movie have been made by Catherine Bigelow or should it have been made mm-hmm. by someone else? If someone else made it, if a black person made it, uh, it, would just, it would be a different movie. Firstly, it might not even exist at all because it's a fact that uh, people of color aren't getting projects made at the ex- to the extent they should be getting them made, right? Like, we, right, that number right. should be higher. But uh, even if it was made, maybe it would be different, it's, it's, it, I mean, not maybe. It would certainly be different. Uh, it might not have the same strengths as a movie. It might have different strengths. Uh, so I, I think there's really some value in, in taking this movie as it is. And uh, I, I think filmmakers are put in a challenging situation. I'm not saying, like, poor mm-hmm. filmmakers, their lives are so difficult. But I think there is a challenge in terms of what should they take away as the criticism of that is, yep. like, when I read the criticism, it feels like, hey, just stay in your own lane. Like, don't, don't tell uh, stories about black pain. Don't tell stories about black people. Those should be, what, the provenance of, uh, of black people? In which case, they make movies, like, only about white people, and then they get, you know, slammed for that as well, right? Like, uh, if you guys right. saw Sophia yeah, Coppola. That's, that's, it's like a, a slippery slope of, like, you know, basically making people only do things that they know about right right and, like like only only tell yeah. stories that you, you know from life experiences yeah. that you know now i hope i hope i am not setting up straw men mm-hmm. here i hope i'm like accurately characterizing uh you know people's viewpoints but when i read reviews like angelica jades uh if i was Catherine bigelow reading mm-hmm. that review uh i would not think oh she's cool with me telling like other black stories as long as i do it better you know i i would think uh that there is like kind of this, this hostility to uh, people like Catherine Bigelow making these kinds of movies. And I think it's fine that they have that hostility. I think that's a valid point of view. But mm-hmm. the counterfactual is that Catherine Bigelow didn't make this movie. And I think the world would actually – like the world of cinema would be worse off. Yeah. So, I, I see what you're saying. Like we've talked about like we are in a strange transition period now exactly. as a culture. And I think what we're seeing too like – uh, we talk about this around the big sick and, you know, a lot of films like we bring up this stuff all the time on the show. 
And I think this pushback is good. It's important. Like now people are actually listening to communities that never really had a say before yeah. in media that represented them. So all that is important. I'm never going to tell anybody who feels like they have no you know, reason to go see this movie because they feel it maybe hits too close to home or they may not think it would give them anything new. Like if that's their perspective, then that's, that's completely fine. Like I think that makes total sense. Uh, but I do sort of see like some of the bigger problems in society today is like, just a failure of empathy, right? And we've talked about this before. And this movie, this movie is like a freaking empathy nuclear bomb. This movie <laughs> really True. conveys, yeah, the the horror of a situation like this in extreme police brutality. So yeah, I agree with you, Dave. Like I do think it is a good thing, especially if somebody feels completely removed from these problems. Like it, it would hopefully help somebody kind of uh, fix their heart. Uh, a little as it were uh, taking the Twin Peaks thing uh, but I, I think like the, something like this is ultimately good yeah I was just going to say uh, both of you uh, I am in awe of how well you have both articulated what you have said here and and I'm I just think I agree 100% with everything you both have said and I'm just um, very impressed with how well you've been able to express the conflict of 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 this. And I will say as <clears throat> speaking for white America, as I often have to on this podcast, um, <laughs> it's an, we, as Devinder said, as we've all said previously on previous episodes, we are in an odd time yeah. because, uh, you know, as, as a <laughs> sensitive white person, capital S W P whatever, uh, I, it is it's a tough thing to to hear how dare you not be on our side okay i'm on your side i don't want i don't need you to be on my side you know that that kind of um rage it really comes from from rage of of and very justifiable rage it, and it's the kind of thing of why don't we get movies made like this okay i'll make a movie like this how dare you make a movie like this only we should be able to make movies like this well what am I supposed to do? You know, that's the kind of feeling, and I'm and I'm not articulating mm -hmm. this nearly as well as either of you have. But no, it is, I, I think I think you're right. I think you're uh, you're right. We're in a growing pains period where 50 years from now, hopefully, there's people of all colors making movies. There's black people. There's women. There's Asians. There's Native Americans. Everyone's directing movies. Everyone's acting in movies. Um, the entire United States population has turned, you know, light brown. Uh, like there's, you know, it's mixed race, everything. And we don't have these conversations anymore. And because it's like, you can tell, like everyone can tell each other stories. Everyone has equal access to Hollywood, et cetera, et cetera. But we're not there right now. We're in this weird right. time period where 90% of the movies in Hollywood are directed by men. Um, and you know, significant portion of them are directed by white men. And, and so there's this kind of like, as we transition from the one place to the other, it's almost like directors are being asked to, to walk a very, very difficult line. It's like, you must include diversity in your movie, but not too much diversity or else you're like appropriating the culture, but don't include nothing or else it's just all white right. people and you're perpetuating this horrible system. The uh, underlying feeling there that's being expressed is one of frustration and rage, and it is justifiable. It is one that is that is bubbled up from years of feeling unrepresented and misrepresented, and those are things that I am sensitive to. Those are things that I think all of us 
believe are real and want to pay attention to and want to understand and want to see rectified over time. And, you know, I've been in situations on Twitter where I, I speak out on things and I am criticized for how dare you try to understand what I'm feeling. And it's like, I'm on your side on this one. I want to be on your side. I'm trying to understand. And it's all a learning process. And I think ultimately where we have to live and, and, and and then you get, you know, accused of mansplaining and all these things where it's like, no, I'm, I'm not trying to mansplain. I'm just trying to be on your side. Um, Mm -hmm. but what ultimately where we get, I think is at least in this case, you kind of just have to, or I would like to discuss the piece of art as it is, right? Because I think we all look at this piece of art and say, it's really worthwhile. It's really worthwhile. And I, I love that. <laughs> I love that, that uh, well, description I, I, of it would, as a I nuclear would, bomb of empathy, because yeah, I, it, mean, it, I would question, I would question whether it's worthwhile. Like I am, mm-hmm. I, I think there's exceptional filmmaking in this movie, but when I watched it, I thought to myself, like, did I really need to endure that? Because it's not yeah, as though yeah. I think that police brutality isn't the problem. Like, I, I've seen the videos. Uh, it's horrifying to me. And but it's not – this movie – I would argue this movie is not about police brutality. It's about power. Sure. Whatever yeah. you want to call it. Like, the root cause, yeah. The, yeah. the stuff that's going on – yeah, I mean, you, you think it's kind of more like a Stanford prison experiment kind of thing, right? Um, yeah, and, but and I think I think it does a really, and that's mm-hmm. kind of why I was pushing back against the whole horror movie thing. And maybe I misunderstood what you were meaning, but I, I really feel like this movie shows insight into how these these cops get seduced into this position of power because ultimately they kind of this guy kind of thinks he's doing the right thing. Like he thinks that you need to, yeah. And and we really see in this movie people destroying their own neighborhoods, right? And it comes from rage and it comes from all these things you understand, but the expression of it is a very destructive one that mm-hmm. you can't have in but society, right? That's so, also how it all, like, I, yeah, that comes up a lot too. Like when you're talking about do the right thing, like why are you destroying your own neighborhood when you're trying to fight against the system? Uh, that There's a lot of stuff you can read about that and why that sure. happens. And especially in communities where they have no power the one thing you can take control of is like what's around you like taking control of your world in a way that may be destructive but that's that's just the thing that lets somebody who has no power feel like they can do something but i'm glad you brought up the idea jeff that this cop um the lead cop uh who does most of the uh the torturing uh the way we're introduced to him that is just a fascinating scene isn't it because he's talking about it he sounds like mcnulty and the wire or something right he sounds like oh, i'm a good guy uh we're failing these people we're, we're failing right. them we need to do better dude runs out chases after a guy with groceries with a shotgun and shoots him in the back like all that is one scene right. and i think that's when i knew this movie was onto something like that's the sort of thing i really love from Catherine bigelow because she really uses action to tell you something about these characters and what's happening right this is a guy who thinks he's trying to help uh, and he's helping by stopping a guy who wants food and shooting him in the back several times, like hunting him down. Right. And that thought process. So, like, I, I see what you're saying, Jeff. Like, this is a movie that's ultimately about power, but it really is about how power informs something like police brutality, because right. that's what uh, it is. And, and mm-hmm. like, please, like, I, I'll be, you know, I know you're not mm-hmm. saying this, Jeff, but I really also think the movie is about racism. 
Um, yes, of course. So, you of know, course. and how and how power and racism mix together to form this very unfortunate uh, mix. Uh, Undoubtedly, but, mm-hmm. I, but I will say that um, Will Poulter. This is like a breakout performance for that guy. Uh, will Poulter, who's in The Revenant and We're the Millers and The Maze Runner, he plays the evil cop in this movie. Mm-hmm. And I thought he's just absolutely chilling in this so movie. So good. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so, so good. But I, I also think that some of the most horrific moments of the movie are when you see these other law enforcement officers mm-hmm. who know what is right and wrong and just go, I don't want to get involved. You know, yeah. that when that guy's like, oh, what these, but these people have civil rights. And he's like, yeah, yeah. And you see him think about it and he's like, all right, let's just go. I don't want to get a, it's involved. It's a freaking National Guard, I think, right? And like they roll up, like, this is wrong, everybody. Yeah. This, this shouldn't be happening. Let's go. Let's just, yeah. <laughs> and let's and just, those, those moments to me were even yeah. more chilling and more heartbreaking because yep. it's, it's the inaction, mm-hmm. the complicitness of, of just allowing it to go on that that hit me really hard. It's people who think they're good who do nothing. Like that, right. that's that's really what it comes down to. Even like the like uh, the boss of these uh, of these cops, like the homicide detectives, that's really giving him shit. Like, why, why did you shoot somebody in the back for running away with groceries? Like, he's giving him shit. It's like, okay, I'm going to suspend you, but he he could have pulled the kid off the street that like that moment. It's like, right. give me your badger gun right now. Like, what are you right. doing? But no, I'm going to recommend ho- I'm going to recommend murder charges. But exactly. You'll have a great rest of your day. Exactly. You go back out on the street. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's I love that the movie had those situations too. It is people basically failing to do anything to 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 stop the horror of the of the overall system, and that's that's an incredible thing to see in a film like this. Well, I think uh, here's one thing that I think makes the movie. Uh, a bit challenging is it would be one thing if uh, Catherine Bigelow made a flawless movie and people were still saying that um, mm-hmm. that she shouldn't be telling the story. You know, like that would be a different argument than I think the argument that's being had today, which is that there are some really significant issues with this movie, and I think one of them is the character of uh, Dismukes, who's played by uh, John Boyega. Mm-hmm. There is a really interesting concept uh, behind that character uh, i mean firstly i should point out that i I believe there there is controversy about the real life dismukes and whether he was actually involved in perpetrating some of the crimes in that um Mm -hmm. in the hotel but uh there's something really interesting about this person who uh like the, the black people don't treat him well because they see him as like a traitor of sorts white people don't treat him well because they see him as lower to some degree uh, mm-hmm. And so he's kind of trapped between these two worlds where he's trying to be deferential but also trying to be helpful. Uh, and that, that's a very interesting dynamic that the movie, in my opinion, doesn't do anything with. I don't mm. think it goes anywhere. Uh, he has he has an arc, though, which I found to be interesting. Like, the, he disappears for entire swaths yeah. of this movie. Like, yeah. his character just pops up. Like, he is employed to be security guard, you know, in a grocery store. And then shit starts going down way somewhere else and he's like i'm gonna go yeah, it's like, that well, out, well why I does guess. he even show up like that you know exactly. that was a little confusing and so it's very confusing I, so i felt as though um mm-hmm. the, the character yeah there he does have an arc you know seeing him at the yeah. trial like that is interesting and and how he reacts I, to that but, i do think he starts out as somebody who thinks like you know i'm gonna do i'm gonna do what i can to lift myself up out of the situation like he was doing everything he could to like appease the cops right. and like you know appease the white people basically so other people wouldn't get hurt but in a way too it also seemed like he was complicit in the system at the beginning right he told 
uh, one of the guys is like, if, if you guys weren't making trouble, these cops wouldn't be here. Like, he basically believed the cops' version of the events to right. even be in the hotel in the first place. And slowly he starts to see what's happening. And the ultimate injustice is that amazing scene where they call him in in the interrogation room and like the tables have turned and he is, you know, he's just a guy in overalls. He's just a blue collar worker. He's not a guy with a uniform and a gun. And those cops, which aren't even like the terrible, you know, police uh, brutality cops. Those are just shitty cops yelling at him and trying to uh, basically make him confess to something that he didn't do. That whole scene, like the horror of the situation where he basically loses control and he realizes, Oh man, like this, yeah, they're not treating me well and I can't do anything about this. And like his that growth, I guess, at least for the character on screen. I don't know how yeah, it kind of no, ended up no, for him fair, in real life. That's enough, that's something. Fair enough. Yeah. You're right. You're right. Devin. It's not nothing. But I think uh, it 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 taps only a, a small fraction of the percentage yeah. of, of what a character yeah. like that would go through. So but very, very good point yeah. on that. The other thing that I think is just really weird in this movie is there is a bunch of kind of anachronistic almost like audience wish fulfillment moments in the movie mm-hmm. so for instance towards the end of the movie one of the characters uh the singer right uh he runs yeah. out and he he runs to this fence and then like a cop finds him and yes. like nurses him back yeah. and he's like oh my gosh what kind of monster did this thing i never and it's just yeah it's, it's exactly. i think his, his exact line is who would do this to a person right it, it is very very disconcerting i mean and then you, he he also said i'm gonna help you brother right like, right and take you to the cop like uh it's just, there, there's it's, a lot of blue it's lives movie's matter very ham-fisted yeah. way of showing that like not all uh yeah. policemen are horrible which i i understand the desire mm-hmm. to do that but just like the way it was executed in this movie felt very very odd and not yeah. it, it did not feel like it fit in with the rest of the movie. <laughs> it wasn't very subtle at all but i i guess i sort of give that really hokey thing a pass because the movie did so many other subtle things where the you know the rest of the cops just kind of let all this happen like, right. any, like so on so many levels this could have been stopped that was a very really I, I do agree with you that that element like the milgram experiment-esque thing of like people just letting this awful stuff transpire that was very chilling i agree that that was mm-hmm. like a very well well done part of the movie or the the dude that doesn't understand that he's not supposed to actually shoot the guy uh which is like, plays out like a almost comedic moment in the movie, which kind of was uncomfortable, and I'm still not sure how I feel about that moment. Like, I don't, yeah, yeah, I don't know. I, 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 I yeah, I don't know. And, and in any case, um, it didn't uh, feel comedic. It it definitely felt like it felt more like an oh shit moment. But I, I, yeah, my, nobody in my audience laughed when that happened. <laughs> yeah, fair no. enough. I agree with you on that part. I agree with you. Uh, about I, I that. will say anecdotally, I went to see this on at 11 a.m. on a Saturday, and uh, my audience, I was surprised how full it was. First of all, and second of all, it was almost split right down the middle between white and black audience, um, and there was a lot of cheering at the end of the movie from my audience and. I don't know, just when, anecdotal. When, I thought that happens? was interesting. When what happens? When the credits came on. <laughs> oh, was just cheering hearing it. about the movie being... Yeah, being just great. applauding the I film, see. yeah. I see, I see. Um, well, on that note, you know, another anachronism is when the, the cop uh, comes in, like Will Poulter tries to leave, and he, you know, the cop like, mm-hmm. leans over the window and he's like, you know, something, 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 you racist fuck. And it's like, really, I don't really believe that... that would actually happen in that way, you know. I don't think oh, there's yeah. someone saying like racist fuck to this guy. Um, and I mean, 
I could see a lot of things I would, happening. I would like to see that. <laughs> like, I would like yeah. that, 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 you know, but again, it felt like audience wish fulfillment as opposed to an actual representation of the truth. Well, he to... says that when he was the dude that could have pulled him off the street at the beginning. No, no, no. That was a different guy. Different, a different guy. guy. Different guy okay, questioning yeah. him at the end. Um, but I, I did want to give a shout out to this thing that really kind of uh, affected my perception of this whole issue. Uh, and there's been many uh, stories about this in, in the press this past year. Uh, but Radiolab had a two-part series called Shots Fired. Did mm-hmm. you listen to this yeah. by any chance? Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. Shots Fired Part 1 and 2. It's, ba- it's uh, a collaboration with uh, uh, a reporter from the Tampa Bay Times who also did a written story about this. Um, and one thing that was in that podcast series that really stuck with me was at the end talking about – so they interview all these parents whose children have been killed by police officers. Like uh, often the children are unarmed. And uh, they're killed by police officers. And, like, that's uh, a horrifying thing for any parent to endure. And talking about how almost every single instance in which this happens, pretty much every single one, the cop goes free. Like, nothing happens to the cop. Oh, yes. yeah. And how that is a separate form of violence. Like, like the, the, the initial murder or, you know, killing of the child is awful and horrendous. But then knowing that the cop is out there, potentially still being a cop, potentially still with a gun patrolling the streets, like that is a separate form of violence. Uh, And that's one thing I think the movie did a good job of illustrating is how galling and infuriating um, a trial like this must have been, is that um, all these horrible atrocities occur and the system is constructed in such a way uh, to let them go free. And, and mm-hmm. how, like, that it, – it's almost like reliving the nightmare all over again in a way. Like, it, it, is, it is a separate nightmare um, that the cops are going free. Uh, yep. And uh, Washington Post just did a piece on this. Uh, did you guys see this? Uh, four days yeah. ago, they published a, a thing about how – and let me see. This is um, – the headline of this article is fired slash rehired. Police chiefs are often forced to put officers fired for misconduct back on the streets. And it has this, uh, it has this like, really incredible graphic at the top where it says, since 2006, at least 1,881 police officers have been fired from 37 of the nation's largest departments for behavior that betrayed the public's trust. Um, and it goes over some of the horrible things they've done. Uh, 451 of those 1,800 or so uh, successfully appealed and won their jobs back. So it's like huge percentage of cops uh, back in their old jobs. And this is just a, a few days ago. So it, it, the events of the movie definitely still have resonance today. And if it's not something that you're aware of or it's not something that you're, uh, you, you've been following, I think it will have value. But if it is something you follow, then I question the value a little bit more. Sure. I appreciate you guys letting me like, go on about this for uh, length, at length because I've been thinking a lot about it. Um, but I think it's important. And I, and, and I, I mean, that's what I think is so valuable about this movie for any perceived faults and i think it it's a, it's wonderful that it engenders conversation and i don't understand anybody that wouldn't be you know possessed by this movie for for days and weeks after it has certainly it, it placed itself in my mind uh and i'm i'm moved by it every day i, I think about it i mean, it's it's a powerful work so i think it has value all right mm-hmm. guys uh, well, that's our review of Detroit. 
thanks for listening. Uh, stay tuned to your OB reviewing next week. In the meantime, Jeff Kanata, where can find more of your work on the internet this week? Oh, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Jeff Kanata, which is spelled with two N's and one T. And I have several other shows for you to listen to, especially if you like video games. I do a daily video game show called Newest, Latest, Best that you can find on iTunes. You can find it on Google Play. Just search for Newest, Latest, Best or visit anchor.fm slash NLB. I have a weekly video game show as well called DLC. It's a long form show with guests. Uh, you can find that at 5x5.tv slash DLC. And I have a short form comedy show about science. That's called We Have Concerns and you can find that at wehaveconcerns.com. How about you, Devendra Hardor? Oh, you can find me on Twitter at, at Devendra and I write about tech at engadget.com. Find all my stuff at DaveChen.net. I'm on Twitter at DaveChensky. And I'm hosting a podcast about Game of Thrones at GameOfThronesPodcast.com. Next week, we're going to be reviewing The Glass Castle, the newest film by uh, director Dustin Cretton, I think, right? Uh, this is a guy who did Short Term 12. Really excited for this movie. Um, mm-hmm. But I should mention that I probably am not going to be here. Um, uh, I'm probably going to be taking a break next week, uh, and probably for the next couple weeks, actually. So um, that'll, uh, next week's episode of The Glass Castle will be without me. And, um, and I think in two weeks, we're probably taking a week off. And uh, I hope to be back by the end of the summer, but we'll see. I've been, I've been podcasting myself into the ground recently, guys, and uh, need a little bit of a break. But uh, in any case, you can find more episodes of our podcast at SlashFilmCast.com. Email us at SlashFilmCastGmail.com. We'll see you next week. We watch the movies.